Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, we got a pile of stuff on the program today. It is, it's jam-packed. My rant, which I'm going to get to in just a moment, is titled, Authoritarian Coups Are Gradual Then Sudden. Meanwhile, all across social media, the word is spreading. The storm is upon us. We'll get to that in a moment. David Gosar is going to be with us, the brother of Paul Gosar, the congressman who threatened to kill Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Why isn't he being held responsible for this death threat? And also, the fetal heartbeat policy kills another woman. This is a, a tragic story. I'll share that with you. Trump's depravity, he is now openly defending the people who were chanting, hang Mike Pence. We'll get to that. A man who was uh, arrested for threatening a Republican who voted for the infrastructure bill. Gradual, then sudden. See, this is how things happen. They happen gradually and then suddenly. I'll get into that in just a moment. But right now, Jennifer Stefano is with us. Jennifer is a Republican strategist, the vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation, a fellow with the Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org, CommonwealthFoundation.org. Jennifer Stefano is her Twitter handle, and, uh, or at IWF. And uh, Jennifer, the vast majority of people who are making a pile of money in America have paid leave. Uh, this is uh, according to uh, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. 95% of people in the top 10% of income earners in the United States have some form of paid sick leave. Among the lowest tenth, only 33% uh, have that access. In the highest wage group, 43% have paid family leave compared with just 6% in the bottom group. The, uh, the, the thesis that I'm putting forward here is that we're confusing welfare with basic foundational stuff that a society should have in order for people to have a reasonable standard of living. And it seems to me that paid family leave, uh, it went from 12 weeks in the Build Back Better bill, you know, and then over the objections of Joe Manchin down to zero, and then now it's coming back up to four weeks, and we'll see where this goes. But I would argue that that is just the core stuff that a society should, that, that the citizens of a society should expect to have available to them. It is available in every other developed country in the world, after all. What say you? 
Yeah, and I think you're seeing a big increase in paid leave in the private sector. And I also share your concern about how we're helping low-income people, and both men and women. I am really tired of this being offered only to women. Um, It should be offered to everyone across the board. And my concern is that a big government federal program, which according to the Congressional Budget Office will will already be bankrupt when you start it, is not the answer. My concern is that a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't work. And there is research that shows that it is very costly to women and actually suppresses our wages and our employment opportunities. And we've seen that not just in states in America that have done it, but in other countries. How can it be costly to women to get four weeks off when they give birth? Yeah, that's a great question, because we become a liability in the marketplace. When you only offer it to women, we become more costly than men. Oh, we I see what you're saying. Well, I, you know, what if we just offered it to everybody? I mean, I, I agree with you. This, this is, right. you know, these kind of things should not be just for women. I, you know, totally agree with you. Okay, I'm glad you're saying that because I I really am tired of men need to step up and they need to be fathers. Also, what about gay men? Does one of them have to choose to be maternal? I just want to proudly say at my institution, the Commonwealth Foundation, we have 12 weeks family leave for both genders and we have unlimited PTO because uh, we believe people need to take care of their family, whatever that may look like. And you don't have to have a child even, but you, you may have someone sick that you need to take care of. So we did it in, in the private sector and we did it because because we do believe it matters. We are one of the 70% of the Americans that believe paid family leave is important. We give 12 full weeks. And what you've seen over um, more than more than a decade is that the private sector continues to stop up. Now you're asking, why is it accelerated? If we could do it as a federal mandate, wouldn't that be better? My answer is no. I, I actually think that'll be highly costly because there's a cultural issue here, Tom. And that is this. It's that largely men tend not to take this time off, thus still making women feel like more of a liability when we do take it. And higher wage earners tend to be offered it because they tend not to take it. And what happens is if you do a big federal mandate like this, there's been some studies in states that have done it that show that it actually benefits middle and upper middle class women and doesn't help um, lower income women as intended. So while I can the premise, a one-size-fits-all federal mandate isn't the answer. I think we can look at other solutions. Then I would argue that it simply wasn't done right if that was the outcome. But the simple fact of the matter is that what you and your organization and Commonwealth Foundation have done, which is commendable, is only available to 6% of the low-wage workers in the United States. And, and you know, we're not, you're not going to see American business suddenly get enlightened, particularly when it comes to people who are making minimum wage or, you know, even in the bottom, I'd say, half of America of the American workforce. So if you believe, Jennifer, if you truly believe that this is something that should be available to everybody, not just, you know, wealthy white people who work at Commonwealth Foundation, or I, let me take the race out of it, wealthy people or, you know, upper middle class people who work at Commonwealth Foundation, then then shouldn't this shouldn't government either well i'm not even going to ask it as a question i'm just going to make the assertion it it seems to me that your concern is oh my god if we make this a government program and government pays those 12 weeks because there's a lot of small employers who probably can't deal with the expense of that then some billionaire is going to have to pay more in taxes and oh my god we can't have that isn't that that is the essence of your argument is it not 
No, I think if you guys ever want to win anything, you have to stop pretending like all you need to do is tax the rich. Like, fine, tax the rich. Like, great. You won't have the rich are paying like less than one percent in income taxes. Let's start with just reasonable taxes for rich people. Let me finish. You guys cannot fund all these programs you want by just taxing the rich. You are going to have to convince the American people who are not stupid because they know this, that it is going to cost all of us. It is not just going to stay with the rich. It never does. Then how do they do it in every other developed country in the world, Jennifer? What's what's so unique about America that only in America we can't tax the rich? They have walked back these programs because of the unintended consequences, particularly for women. So I just want to be in Denmark. I would strongly encourage you and your followers to go look at what happened in Denmark to women and how it suppressed career growth and wage growth. You can look to California as well, who did this. And you saw a huge increase in the length of unemployment, especially for younger women. So do it across both genders, as you suggested. I mean, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. So, but let me say this, there is a cost. So right now, the suggestion yes. is that it would be 0.4% to the payroll tax. Well, Tom, that will put the program immediately into a $7 billion deficit. The Congressional Budget Office, which is not a partisan office, says by 2028, in order to in any way fund this program, you're going to need to increase payroll taxes by 240%. Now, the rich can sustain it. The middle class, maybe. But who are you crushing? You're crushing the working poor. And by the way, in states like Pennsylvania, we're doing a big poverty project. 56% of low income. Then let's just pay for it out of the general fund. $6 billion is nothing out of the general fund. I mean, you know, we're getting $800 billion a year for defense. We can't spend $6 billion to help out people who are who, who just had a death in the family or who, who just gave birth. Of both you genders? Are still only fun. This inevitably will go and benefit these upper middle class women that you do not want to fund. Because I am telling you what has happened in states that have done this. You're only going to be funding 66% of the wages for low income workers. And oftentimes in a one income household, particularly if it's headed by a female, they cannot afford to take the that The proposal in Build Back Better pays 90% of wages for the bottom 10% of workers in America, not 66%. That, no, the program would fund 66% of the wages for paid family leave. Now, um, that can change. Uh, you know, workers making $15,000 or less a year would receive the highest wage replacement rate, 90%. But they would have, they the will have had to have had earned $2,000 in the two years prior, as well as some level of income immediately preceding the leave. You know, which is just, it's just designed to prevent people who are, you know, just, just hopped into the job market the week before they got, you know, pregnant or something like that from, from claiming this or gave birth. Okay, and I don't know, like, why are we penalizing them if it's a if it's a benefit offered by their government? Why would why shouldn't they jump in and get that right? You guys don't believe in work requirements around welfare. I mean, let's just be really honest that there are there is waste, fraud, and abuse, and it's much harder to route out in big federal programs, which is why they become so costly. And then women or men or men who legitimately need the help cannot get it. If you look at a study of these programs, and there's really great research out there, from multiple, you can look at the Cato Institute, you can look at the Brookings, that shows inevitably 
these programs like so right-wing many- think tanks are always going to show this. Look at the Economic Policy Institute, a left-wing think tank, has found the largely the exact opposite. I mean, either this is the right thing to do, and we, as a society, should figure out how to make sure it's available to people, not just to the wealthy people, the the 95% who have you know in the in the top in the top 10% of income earners but also to the bottom 10% who only have 6% access to these kind of things. We either do it or we don't. Yeah, I concur. The question is, how do we do it? Where you and I are having a debate is not on the virtue, virtuous nature of whether or not we oh, want it's whether it's the role of government. Absolutely. And I'm saying and it is. Businesses are hard. As the owner of a small business, I'm saying it is. They're all super progressive and woke. So my first question is, all these woke people, Delta, Coca-Cola, why aren't y'all yelling at them? They are hardly conservative, okay? So they're not doing it in yeah, the free woke, woke slurs aside, it, it, this, the, again, it's this, we're, we're debating whether this should be something that we as a country agree should happen. And, and, and either, either we could pass a law saying every employer must offer this, which I, I'm pretty sure that's how it works in Germany. I lived in Germany for a year and I knew a person who was on uh, you know, paid leave at the time and they were getting it from the organization that I worked for. Um, but I'm sure that there's all kinds of nuance to that. But either we do it as a country, either we mandate employers or we, or we pick up the tab. I mean, what other choices are there other than saying to low-income workers, tough luck, you're on your own, which is what you're suggesting. My first thing is, I, I, don't, I think it's a false narrative to say we either federally mandate it or we, we do nothing. My, my first or we federally is, pay for it. We can make a societal compact that we want to strengthen families. Although I will say the progressives have been doing a lot of work saying that families are, in fact, structures of white supremacy, Tom. So the mere Oh, fact come on, we, Jennifer. Je- Tom, Google the, the National Family Council. I, I will send it to you. Yeah. They are doing a webinar on how the traditional family is a, a structure of white supremacy. That is okay, That's a whole other discussion for a whole other time. I'm sorry. Jennifer Stefano with the Commonwealth Foundation, commonwealthfoundation.org, Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org. Jennifer Stefano on Twitter. Jennifer, thank you for dropping by. Thanks. I always love being on. Thanks. Good talking with you. Well, what say you? You know, should government do this? Should we mandate that private employers do this? Both? Not at all? And what do we do about, you know, Joe Manchin saying we got to take paid leave out of the Build Back Better law or bill, rather? (sighs) Amazing. Anyhow, uh, picking up your phone calls here, Anita in San Antonio, Texas. Hey, Anita, thanks for listening to Progressive Voices. What's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Yeah, you know, the government already requires uh, paid family leave. And in the government, women have not been hurt by that. They hold higher positions in government than anywhere else. Wait a minute. Do you mean do you mean that uh, state or federal governments are already offering paid family leave? Yes, they okay. already offer. They don't. Op- they have to. Uh-huh. People. They have to offer paid family leave. And I'm probably even the contractors to the government. I'm not really sure about that. But mm-hmm. I know the government does, and we don't see it hurting women within the government. I mean, yes, there, there, are, there may be problems societally the way, with men not taking it as much as women, but you have to, you, have to, you know, deal with that when, it, when, that, when that happens. I, I mean, I don't know what her sources are. I'm sure her sources are conservative think tanks. Cato Institute so is what she, she cited. Yeah, yeah exactly. So Which used to be the Charles that, Koch Foundation. So, yeah, if, if you really believe in stronger families, you want people to take family leave. And the only re- 
some people, a lot of people don't take it because it's not paid. When, you know, right. when fathers stay ho- are able to stay home, that strengthens the family. You know, when people are able to stay home with a sick relative or whatever, for, or a sick child or whatever, whatever they have to do to take when and take that family leave, it strengthens the family. It doesn't weaken the family. I don't understand why she's the, the bottom line for some of these people is always the dollar, right? It, 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 well, it'll cost these businesses this much. Well, the you know the you want stronger families because we want a stronger country, we want a stronger community of people to as you know in our workforce. Yeah, don't we? I, I mean, then we want to strengthen families. We want to provide people with an opportunity both to be productive in the workforce and to raise a family. And it seems like this is just absolutely. a simple thing. And I don't understand why Joe Manchin is so opposed to it. I don't. I don't understand. I don't understand a lot that Joe Manchin is opposed to. I mean, the people, you know, and I, and I certainly don't understand Kirsten Cinema. But she. Did, I mean, I don't understand why these people are so against this. I really don't. It is to me. It seems like common sense. I don't know what country she's talking about where it's not working out for, you know, for people. Because I've talked to people that are from Finland and they are very happy with it. Or I know one of my friends is from Austria. She got it like a year off when she had a baby. Yeah. So, you know, these people are happier people. You have the happier workers. You're going to have a, a better workforce when they're happy. When they're, yeah. you know, when they don't have to worry all the time. And you have a better society when kids are raised well, when the when parents have time to bond with their children, particularly early in life. You have, you know, children who grow up to be well-adjusted people rather than growing up to be crazies like, you know, they go out and shoot people at, at protests people because obviously that's the party of the, a lot of the people there are party of crazy. crazy yeah there you yeah. go anita i gotta run but thank you for the call uh, great points all delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery starring academy award winner russell crowe now available on digital Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. Uh, Just wanted to flag this for you. There have been uh, literally tens of thousands of people in Poland uh, pouring out into the streets in protest of the death of this woman, Isabella. She's 30 years old. She was in the 22nd week of her pregnancy. She had a fetus that had severe uh, birth defects, severe abnormalities that would have qualified her in pretty much any other country on earth for an abortion uh, as you know a risk to her and a non-viable fetus 
But Poland, being hyper-Catholic, has basically outlawed all abortion. And so uh, this, this is the text message she sent to her mother. Uh, the baby weighs 485 grams. That's uh, FYI, that's uh, 16 or 17 ounces. The baby weighs 485 grams. For now, thanks to the abortion law, I have to lie down and there is nothing they can do. They'll wait till it dies or something begins. And if not, I can expect sepsis. And then the next paragraph in the story, this is from Reuters uh, over at Reuters.com. The headline is, Death of Pregnant Woman Ignites Debate About Abortion Ban in Poland. When a scan showed the fetus was dead, doctors at the hospital in Przynska, southern Poland, decided to perform a cesarean. Isabella's heart stopped on the way to the operating theater, and she died despite efforts to resuscitate her. The hospital said, and I quote, it should be emphasized that all medical decisions were made taking into account the legal provisions and standards of conduct in force here in Poland at this moment. Now, the same thing happened uh, seven years ago in Ireland. Back in 2012, uh, a 31-year-old woman, Savita Halapanavar, uh, died after she was refused an abortion. She, again, she had a fetus with uh, genetic abnormalities. It, it died within her and then caused her to become septic, and then she died. And as a result of that, Ireland loosened up their anti-abortion laws. And it's looking like Poland will probably do the same thing, but, you know, who knows? So anyhow, I just wanted to flag that for you. And also, an expert decodes, an extremist expert, decodes doublespeak Charlottesville Nazi language. Again, gradual then sudden. So what, what do I mean by that? You know, gradual, then sudden. Well, back in 1926, so this, is, this is my op-ed for today over at HartmanReport.com. Authoritarian coups are gradual, then sudden. In 1926, Ernest Hemingway published this novel. It was called The Sun Also Rises. And there was this little bit of dialogue in there that was, you know, it, it has always been resonant to me. I, it's for years I've thought about this. Um, how do you go bankrupt? How did you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually and then suddenly. What brought it on, what brought it on? Bill asked. Friends, Mike said. I had a lot of friends, false friends. So then I note that for some unfathomable reason, Democrats continue to refer to Republican colleagues as our friends on the other side of the aisle. These people increasingly are not friends. They are systematically destroying American democracy with the clear objective of replacing it with strongman authoritarianism, a new and American version of what Benito Mussolini called fascism. And right now they're moving gradually. They are infiltrating police departments. They are infiltrating the enlisted ranks of the military. They are taking over school boards and local official, uh, local boards of elections. They are firing principals and teachers who defend multiracial, multicultural democracy while banning and burning books that contain such dangerous ideas. They're gerrymandering states, so regardless of how people vote, Republicans control the levers of power. They're changing election laws so they can both make it harder for city dwellers to vote and to ignore and even change the outcomes of elections that they don't like. They are building media structures that will support the authoritarian takeover when it happens. They are organizing armed paramilitary militias with back-channel connections to local police. They're creating lo legal organizations to sanitize and rationalize ending 
messy democracy. They are radicalizing average Americans through social media and an ever-growing network of hard-right podcasts. They are spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Democrats and Jews drinking children's blood. And they just firebombed the Texas Democratic Party's Austin headquarters, and they are threatening that if they don't stop trying to get Democrats elected, worse will come. You know, we've seen this movie before. In 1973, General Pinochet had spent a couple of years in, in Chile, he had spent a couple of years preparing the foundation. Mostly he had infiltrated the police and the army. So when Pinochet showed up at the presidential palace on 9-11, 1973, this was the first 9-11, on 9-11, 1973, a government that had been run democratically since 1923 fell in a matter of hours because the police who defended the Capitol building in Chile were on Pinochet's side. They refused to defend President Salvador Allende. Allende and about 30 people in the presidential palace who were his friends and, and colleagues held out for three hours. And then he went on the radio, made an address to the nation saying basically this is it. You know, the coup has happened. And then he shot himself in the head. And that was the end of the Allende presidency. Gradually, then suddenly. When Chileans poured into the streets, Pinochet swept them up and held them in a national stadium where tens of thousands were tortured, murdered, or simply disappeared. His democratic opposition just melted. They lost all their power. They vanished underground. It would be 17 years before democracy or even anything resembling democracy came back to Chile. A process, by the way, that's still pulling itself together. If Mike Pence had, been, had gone along with Trump's plan to imitate the election of 1876 and install the guy who lost the popular and the electoral vote as president, as happened back in 1876 when Sam Tilden, the Democrat, won the electoral vote, won the popular vote, and yet nonetheless the House of Representatives put Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, in charge as president. If Mike Pence had done that, America would be a very, very different country today. Gradually, then suddenly. Trump had previously proclaimed his desire to change the nation's libel and slander laws so he could sue or put in jail his opposition. If, if Pence had gone along with Trump on that day, on, on, September, or on January 6th, I'd probably be in jail right now. And you might be too if you have been posting on social media or speaking out against the Trump administration. He had previously promised his violent partisans that he would pardon them and pick up their legal fees. If he was still president by now, I think hundreds of Kyle Rittenhouses would have defended themselves against black people, Antifa, and commie liberals. If this had happened, a constitutional convention like right-wing billionaires have been promoting and annually rehearsing in Washington, D.C., would now be underway rewriting our founding document, the right of all Americans to vote, separation of church and state, civil rights, protection of free speech and assembly, the right to due process and equal protection under the law, 
even the obscure emoluments clause would all be on the chopping block. Trump-friendly corporations right now, if Trump was still president, if Pence had given in, Trump-friendly corporations would be running political purges like they did in the 1950s during the Red Scare and the blacklist time. They'd be examining social media accounts for evidence of leftist leanings. I mean, Johnny McEntee began that process when he was the deputy president in the White House, firing people in the executive branch for liking posts by Taylor Swift. If this had happened, the process that Trump started in Portland and, the, and Seattle in the summer of 2020 of unmarked vans and stormtrooper-like police with no identifying patches, kidnapping people off the streets, yes, that happened here last summer, or the summer before last, 2020. By now, that would have expanded nationwide and tens of thousands of Americans would be in custody without charges. Private prisons would expand to take in the hundreds of thousands of people arrested protesting in the streets or speaking out on social media. I mean, this is exactly what happened in Germany in 33, 34. And here's the weird part. For most Americans, for the majority of Americans who are not political, who don't speak out about politics, who just do their jobs every day and listen to music when they drive home, for them, life would go on like normal. This is how fascist coups happen. Once the sudden part happens, then everything just becomes normal for people who, you know, this is, this is how it happened in Chile and Russia and Hungary. Oh yeah, life is still fine, I still have my job. A handful of high-profile progressive politicians would have been assassinated or survived assassination attempts. The police and the FBI, however, would have been as clueless about them about who the killers were, as they were about the fact that 10,000 people were massing to seize the U.S. Capitol on January 6th and assassinate the Vice President and the Speaker of the House. The Democratic Party by now would have been labeled the aggressors and subversives by right-wing media, and its ranks would have melted away as quickly as the union, the, the pro-union parties did in Italy and Germany in the 30s and Allende's socialists in Chile did in 1973. Abortion would be criminalized, then birth control, then women in business and politics would find themselves under constant attack in the media and the workplace. White male dominance would be back where it was in 1972 when women couldn't legally get an abortion and they had to have their husband's signature to get a credit card. Newsrooms across the country would by now be purged of liberals and running editorials in support of the new patriotism proclaimed by the GOP. You know, half the newspapers in America right now are owned by right-wing hedge funds. And they'd be snapping up the rest of the nation's media like Viktor Orban's uh, oligarch buddies do, you know, did in Hungary. Every time these kind of coups happen in every country, the nation's people are initially shocked and surprised. I, we had no idea it had gone this far. And then it happened. And that, by the way, that's how it happened with the American Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Gradually, then suddenly. Trump's supporters are openly calling for the end of democracy, for book burnings and public executions of Democratic politicians. Kevin McCarthy won't even, won't even punish uh, Paul Gosar for, calling, for you know, fantasizing about the murder of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The multimillionaire former head of the Carlisle Group, Glenn Youngkin, won an election in Virginia as governor with no platform whatsoever other than lying that 
white kids were being taught in Virginia schools to be ashamed of the color of their skin. It was a naked, racist lie. And the media didn't even call him out about it. And Biden thinks he can cut deals with these people. He thinks he can work his way through it. I'm sorry, he's got to go full Franklin Roosevelt and essentially declare war on them. Franklin Roosevelt said, they hate me and I welcome their hatred. This is getting worse and worse, gradually, gradually, gradually. And I'm telling you, in 2020, November, December, January of 2022 and 2024, it's going to get sudden. And we need to get ready. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Gosar, member of Congress from Arizona, Republican from Arizona, tweeted out a 92-second clip, a modified clip of the Japanese Magna series attack on Titan. And in it, he has blood splattering everywhere, words like drugs, crime, murder, poverty, gangs, violence, and trafficking flashing on the screen. And he has his face on the good guy, and he is taking down and killing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Congresswoman from New York. How does this happen? How does somebody like this end up in Congress, for that matter? On the line with us is David Gosar. He is Paul's brother. He's uh, also a practicing attorney. And uh, David, it's been a while since we've talked. Uh, thank you for, for coming back on the program. Uh, what's going on with your brother? What, what, what brings about this kind of bizarre behavior? Well, Tom, I think what we're seeing uh, across the country, and he's an example of it, is, you know, the result of 30 years of right-wing propaganda that has warped people's minds. You know, he's in a position of uh, power, and he wants to keep it. So in order to, you know, be a good cult member in good standing, you have to, you know, say outrageous things, raise some money, and, you know, keep your name out there. And that's exactly how you raise money is by being more extreme than the next guy. 
I thought, so I, I thought it, Republicans it, just basically it, went to big corporations and rich people and said, give me money and I'll do your bidding. I mean, why does he have to do I'll be crazy to, to raise money? Well, you look at the district he's from. OK, he's in a safe district, at least up till now. They're redistricting. They don't have to really you know, give him a lot of money because, you know, he's going to get reelected right. anyway. And, you know, he does collect a lot from the, you know, the mining industry, fossil fuel. So he does their bidding. But, you know, if you want to raise the real money, if you're in his position, you know, this is what you do. Wow. So is your brother uh, is a tough question to ask, but, you know, is he suffering from some kind of mental illness? I mean, uh, or is he just P.T. Barnum is. Are we just seeing showmanship here? Well, it looks like he's he's suffering from something, Tom. You can see in his body movements, and there's been a lot of speculation about some degenerative neurological condition and you know other things. So it looks like there that is at play. But I think what we're seeing right now is just an emboldening of these people because there's no repercussions for what they're doing. Right, and this and is also you know in fact there's only rewards. There's rewards and money. Right. There's rewards and standing in this, you know, nutty Nazi incel community that they're all kind of pandering to. It really is troubling. We're talking with Paul Gosar's brother. Uh, David, do you have any contact with the people? Well, do you have any contact with your brother that, that I, 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 I shouldn't, I'm, I'm really trying not to make this too personal, and yet, you know, here you are. It's, and with the people that he's interacting with, I mean, how big is this cult? How, how strong is this thing in the Republican Party? How much is Paul Gosar actually reflecting the Republican Party versus, uh, you know, being an outlier. I'm, I'm reminded of Steve King. You know, Steve King used to come on my program when he was a Republican congressman from Iowa. And he would say outrageous things and he would push the envelope, but he was still considered kind of inside the mainstream of the Republican Party. And then he just started openly proclaiming white supremacy. And all of a sudden, he was no longer in the in the mainstream. Have the have the lines moved? Is is your brother on the inside or the outside? I mean, what does this say about the Republican Party as well as your brother? Oh, absolutely, Tom. These, this is the mainstream, and I think you know the the Democratic leadership in Congress is you know pretending like it's just all going to go away, you know, and they're hoping it's going to go away without them having to take real action, but it's not. Yeah. This is, you know, if you live amongst these people, which I do in Wyoming, this is who they are. I mean, he is somebody they embrace. You know, what he said, this is not too outrageous for them. They probably agree with it. And I think this is exactly what the, I mean, and the Republican Party represents. And every night they're fed more and more of this through Tucker Carlson and Fox and, you know, all the other outlets that exclusively, that's all they digest every single day, all day. Yeah, 24-7 rage machines. So what would your advice be to Democrats, or for that matter, to the Liz Cheney Republicans, uh, you know, who, who just want to have a reasonable Republican Party and get back to the business of tax cuts for billionaires? What would your advice be to them about how to deal well, with Tom, people like Gosar? Well, Tom, the sooner they realize that there is a binary choice here it's them or it's us it is not something you can be re they can you can reason with it, it it will not they don't believe in facts or science or rational discussion or compromise or anything they believe what they want to believe and that's it mm -hmm. and as soon as they start taking strong action then specifically the person on point here who needs to take strong action is merrick garland 
and he's not doing it. And at this point in time, I'm sort of suspecting that there's a backroom deal with Merrick. You know, I mean, as he sailed through his confirmation process, which was odd to me given the position he was going to be in, given the backdrop uh, and the importance of his position, he sailed through it. And we're seeing that this guy you know, is not taking action as an attorney who practiced in uh, criminal defense law for 25 years, federal and state level. I can assure you that his excuses here are total bunk. He's got to, he's got to, yeah, he's got to, he's got to do his own review and, you know, uh, look at the law and investigate. Some of these things are open and shut and he knows it. And I've seen the federal government move at lightning speed against poor people and the clients I represent. And this is ridiculous. You know, my thought is, and I'm beginning to suspect this, that Merrick Garland doesn't want to offend the Republicans too much because if Breyer's position comes open or somebody else leaves the court, there he is. Oh, he's trying to hang on to get onto the Supreme oh, that, Court. That makes a lot of sense. I, I had been trying to figure out what might be motivating Merrick Garland. That makes so much sense, David. Uh, we're talking to David Gosar, a practicing attorney and, and brother of Paul Gosar. Um, as as a guy who has practiced law for 25 years, and you know your way around this stuff, and I'm not a lawyer and I haven't practiced law, um, how, how best can people who are listening to this program or watching us um, right now uh, reach out to the Justice Department and say, do your damn job? I mean, do we have any leverage? Is there any mechanism for doing this? It, it doesn't appear that there, there is any any leverage tom i mean i mean he's under all sorts of pressure you see it all through the internet you know uh calling people like us speaking out yourself you know it, you know he just sits there and does nothing it's like it's like he it, it to me it disappears to be a deliberate stall yeah. and i don't know i mean you can reach out i have i've you know emailed them repeatedly you know come on let's get going on this and stuff but you know he's going to do what he's going to do because you see the the inability to put pressure on any of these elites you know right. the the, the uh, kirsten cinema the joe mansions you know all the republicans you know opposing these bills that are wildly popular it, it doesn't appear that there is anything you could put pressure on it has to come from his superiors that can will finally wake up because if he does not move on this, he's setting the stage day by day for this to grow and become more solid and and to become more intractable. So is it that Joe Biden needs to walk over to the Department of Justice and kick Merrick Garland's ass? Is that is that what we're left with? You know what? Through intermediaries, or whatever. I know he doesn't want to intervene in the in the uh, in the process, but my suspicion is you no. Know, all of this stuff it's like so many so much you see in court tom you know not maybe the trials but all the other things the sentencing the guilty pleas and you know all the other things you see so all of that is all prearranged so all of it's just theater mm -hmm. you know while you're in there and you know that's what i see confirmation hearings and, and those things and my thought is you know merrick was picked because he was going to behave in this manner wow and uh that's so i don't see the i don't see the pressure coming from him yeah. from biden but that's what needs to happen yeah i'm with you i'm with you david gosar uh brother uh, congressman paul gosar and a practicing attorney david thanks a lot for dropping by it's always nice talking with you thank you thank you tom that's amazing what a thought merrick garland is 
just puttering along because he wants Republicans to vote for him to be on the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's possible. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence by Anna Lemke, MD. This is from the introduction. This book is about pleasure. It's also about pain. Most important, it's about the relationship between pleasure and pain and how understanding that relationship has become essential to a life well lived. Why? Because we transform the world from a place of scarcity to a place of overwhelming abundance. Drugs, food, news, gambling, shopping, gaming, texting, sexting, Facebooking, Instagramming, YouTubing, tweeting. The increased numbers, variety, and potency of highly rewarding stimuli is absolutely staggering. The smartphone is the modern-day hypodermic needle delivering digital dopamine 24-7 to a wired generation. If you haven't met your drug of choice yet, it's coming soon to a website near you. Scientists rely on dopamine as a kind of universal currency for measuring the addictive potential of any experience. The more dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, the more addictive the experience. In addition to the discovery of dopamine, one of the most remarkable neuroscientific findings in the past century is that the brain processes pain and pleasure in the same place. Further, pleasure and pain work like the opposite sides of a balance. We've all experienced that moment of craving a second piece of chocolate or wanting a good book, movie, or video game to last forever. That moment of wanting is the brain's pleasure balance tipped to the side of pain. This book aims to unpack the neuroscience of reward and in doing so, enable us to find a better, healthier balance between pleasure and pain. But neuroscience isn't enough. We also need the lived experience of human beings. Who better to teach us how to overcome compulsive overconsumption than those most vulnerable to it, people with addictions. This book is based on true stories of my patients falling prey to addiction and finding their way out again. They've given me permission to tell their stories so that you might benefit from their wisdom, as I have. You may find some of these stories shocking, but to me they're just extreme versions of what we're all capable of. As philosopher and theologian Kent Dunnington wrote, quote, persons with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise for they show us who we truly are, end quote. Whether it's sugar or shopping, voyeuring or vaping, social media posts or the Washington Post, we all engage in behaviors we wish we didn't to an extent, or to an extent we regret. This book offers practical solutions for how to manage compulsive overconsumption in a world where consumption has become the all-encompassing motive of our lives. In essence, the secret to finding balance is combining the sci science of desire with the wisdom of recovery. And then we jump to the conclusion chapter. We all desire a respite from the world, a break from the impossible standards we often set for ourselves and others. It's natural that we would want to seek a reprieve from our own relentless ruminations. Why did I do that? Why can't I do this? Look at what they did to me. How could I have done that to them? So we're drawn to any of the pleasurable forms of escape that are now available to us. Trendy cocktails, the echo chamber of social media, binge-watching reality shows, an evening of internet porn, potato chips and fast food, immersive video games, second-rate vampire novels. The list really is endless. Addictive drugs and behaviors provide that respite, but add to our problems in the long run. What if, instead of seeking oblivion by escaping from the world, 
we turn toward it. What if instead of leaving the world behind, we immerse ourselves in it? Mohammed, you'll remember, was my patient who tried various forms of self-binding to limit his cannabis consumption, only to find himself right back where he started, progressing from moderation to excessive consumption to addiction at an ever faster cadence. He went hiking at Point Reyes, a nature trail just north of San Francisco, in hopes of finding refuge in an activity that had previously given him pleasure as he once again tried to get control of his cannabis consumption. But every turn in the bend brought fresh memories of smoking weed. Hiking trips in the past had almost always occurred in a state of semi-intoxication. And so instead of being an escape, the hike turned into an agony of craving and a painful reminder of loss. He despaired of ever being able to wrestle his cannabis problem into submission. Then he had his aha moment. At one particular vista point where he had explicit memories of smoking a joint with friends, he brought the camera up to his eye and pointed it to a nearby plant. He saw a bug on a leaf and focused the camera further, zooming in on the beetle's bright red carapace, straciated antennae, and ferociously hairy legs. He was mesmerized. His attention was snared by the creature in his crosshairs. He took a series of pictures, then changed his angle and took more. For the rest of the hiking trip, he stopped to take extremely close-up pictures of beetles. As soon as he did so, his cravings for cannabis decreased. I had to force myself to be very still, he told me at one of our sessions in 2017. I had to achieve a perfect stillness to take a good in-focus picture. That process grounded me, literally, and centered me. I discovered a strange, surreal, and compelling world at the end of my camera that rivaled the world I escaped to with drugs. But this was better, because no drugs were needed. Many months later, I realized Muhammad's path to recovery was similar to my own. The book is called Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. It's written by Anna Lemke, MD. Dopamine Nation by Anna Lemke. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. A, uh, a combat veteran, this is absolutely brilliant. It's uh, from the interwebs. It's a meme that's going around. I think it's a TikTok meme. I could be wrong, but... Uh, it's from Kenneth Ray McCain, and he says, Combat veteran here, just a perspective. If you arrive armed to a place where violence is happening, prepared for violence, and you engage in violence, there is no self-defense. You are, in fact, a willing combatant. If you do this without being sanctioned by a government outside of a combat zone, you are also, in fact, a terrorist. We had another word for armed civilians operating outside the military as well. We call them insurgents. If your recourse to the terrorist is to look up the criminal history of the victims, it's no different than looking up the criminal past of everyone who died on 9-11 in order to justify the, the hijackers. This kid was illegal all the way around. This crap is ridiculous. Amen. Boy, this is just an amazing story making the rounds. It's all over the media. Joe Scarborough did a piece on it on Morning Joe. It's uh, being picked up here, there, and everywhere. 
Trump's depravity for defending hang Mike Pence. He said this a day or so ago. The, the audio is out there. I'm not going to play it. I'm, I'm just not sure whose copyright I'd be stepping on. But basically, he said, you know, what do you expect? People feel like the election got stolen from them. Of course, they're going to want to hang Mike Pence. I mean, <laughs> he's defending the people who say that they want to hang Mike Pence. And by the way, who is it who told them the election was stolen from them? Oh, that's right. Donald Trump. How does this not become a crime? I mean, five people died. Well, and you've got you know, several police officers who committed suicide thereafter. I, I think it's seven or eight now people who have died as a consequence of the January 6th treason attempt and the January 6th you know, com treason investigation committee should be looking into this. You know, what, well, and in fact, I believe they are. What was Trump's role? What role did he play in inciting violence? In fact, I would expand that to say what role did he play in, exciting, in inciting violence throughout his presidency? But we've got now people saying, you know, there's no bottom to his depravity. That, and, and, I mean, it's, it's just amazing. But this is actually, I think, arguably good news. One of the most alarming stories, frankly, of the week was this Reuters investigation showing that uh, there are hundreds of people who have made death threats against election officials, you know, members of government, and the police refuse to even investigate them, much less bring charges against them, which, you know, bolsters my rant that, you know, these right-wingers are infiltrating police departments. But here, this in New York, at least there has been one arrest. Uh, Sky Palma writing over at rawstory.com, a New York man has been arrested for making a death threat against a Republican lawmaker who voted in favor of President Biden's $1 trillion infrastructure bill, the Associated Press reported Friday. Kenneth Gasper, 64, was arrested on Wednesday for threatening New York Representative Andrew Garbarino over the phone. And he's being charged with aggravated second-degree harassment. Garbarino was one of 13 Republicans who voted for the infrastructure package earlier this month. So while they won't arrest or even investigate people who are doing death threats against election officials, and while they will not investigate or arrest people who are doing death threats against Democrats, they apparently will arrest you if you make a death threat against a Republican legislator. So maybe good news. So. Anyhow, back to your phone calls. Charles in Dallas. My apologies, Charles. I'm usually really good at watching the clock, but what's on your mind today? Tom, listen, you're the only talk show host I know in America that takes the opposition point of view and put them at the front of the line. I don't know anybody else who does that. And so because you are honest, because you're well-read, because you're historical, you take the opposition and you put it right up at the front. You don't hide anything. Number one, that makes me admire you as a man, as a person, as a human being. Please take care of yourself because you, you're Charles. a national treasure. You're a national treasure, and I don't know who we have on our side to replace you. Now, Tom, you said this morning that gradual and sudden, I am not going to read scripture. I will not disrespect your program like that, but there is a scripture in the Bible that plainly says, First Thessalonians 5 and 3, and when they shall say peace and safety, 
then sudden destruction shall come upon them. You said wow. gradual and sudden. You said, and I told your producer, I said, when did Tom move into the prophetic? You see, if we, if Donald Trump wins this nation, we are going to move just like Rome, move from the patricians into dictatorship. Commodus, Marcus Aurelius, Caligula, they moved into a Caesar, Caesarial dictatorship. Republics can move into dictatorship, and they do it suddenly. Where are the historians? Where are the Bible expositionists? Where are these people? All they're good for with their mega churches is taking up money, tithe and offer, tithe and offer. And then when you go to the mega church, you hear, God wants to make you a millionaire. God wants to make you a billionaire. It's the same water. It's the same water. Nobody's talking about honesty, fidelity. And we got a lot of people in America. Yeah, you're born in America, but you don't believe in democracy. You proved it January 6th. You believe in mob violence. That's what you did. You believe in Wilmington. You believe in Rosewood. You believe in Tulsa. You believe in Colfax. You believe in taking over by force. Gradual, then sudden. Wake up, America. Wake up, America. It's coming. It's coming. And the pale horse rolled. And death and hell followed him. God bless you, Tom. Yeah, from Thank Revelations. You for yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Charles. I didn't know about the Thessalonians quote. I've, I've read Thessalonians. I've read the whole Bible four times cover to cover, but I didn't recall that quote. But that's You're a good one. You're in the Bible today, buddy. You're in the Bible. Yeah. Gradual and sudden. When yeah. they shall say peace and safety, then sudden. We're going to be sleep, Tom. We're going to be sleep with all these promises. I love America. Yes, you kill spurs, and, and you grab women by their private parts, and you people that call yourself evangelical went into that voting booth, and you voted for that person. I'm yeah. being nice because I'm on your show, Tom. I'm I appreciate nice. it, Charles. Charles, that's brilliant. You, you voted you, for that. You should be a preacher. God bless you, Tom. Yeah. Thank God you, Charles. Take care Thank you, Charles. So good to hear from you. I, I do appreciate the call and the passion, and look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Charles. Harry in Providence, Rhode Island. Hey, Harry, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I wanted to say, I think you're absolutely right about this coup happening gradually than suddenly. And frankly, I'm scared as hell. And I'm thinking, as a progressive, I may need to move to Canada by January of 25. I have two questions I'd like your opinion on. First is, given the extensiveness of the voter suppression, do you think passing these two voting bills in the Senate is sufficient to avoid a coup. And second, as a senior, I'm dependent on Social Security. I'm expecting if the coup takes place, they're going to significantly cut Social Security and perhaps try to eliminate it. I'm wondering how realistic uh, that scare is. Let me deal with the Social Security one first. Uh, I, I would remind you, Harry, that when Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany uh, from 1933 to 1937, he uh, increased social welfare benefits, he strengthened the, the national health care system, their single-payer health care system, he built the Autobahn, he built the national highway system, um, he, he uh, was instrumental in creating Volkswagen and, and you know, the, the people's car, which is literally what Volkswagen means in German. Um, 
he governed as a as a populist, almost as a progressive populist, at the same time that on social issues, and <laughs> however you define those, right, but, you know, social issues generally having to do with race and gender, um, you know, he was very sexist and he was very racist. So uh, my guess is that if there's a coup and if Trump or a Trump, you know, wannabe like Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley takes over, that they will probably actually strengthen Social Security by way of consolidating their power and popularity. There's a reason why Adolf Hitler was on the front cover of Time magazine in 1937 as Time's Man of the Year, and they declared him the most popular politician in the world, and he was at that time. So, uh, number one, I wouldn't worry about the Social Security. With regard to heading to Canada, um, good luck. I mean, you know, <laughs> Canada is making it harder and harder, and. You know, I, th I think we just need to stay and do everything we can to to hold on to this country, to recover this country. Oh, and your question of the two two pieces of legislation, could they stop the coup? I don't think anything can stop the coup if these guys are committed and if they have enough support. Um, it's, you know, it's the, the, the two pieces of legislation, the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act, Joe Manchin's version of the, of the For the People Act, um, you know, they will soften the ability of red states to uh, to have overwhelmingly Republican legis you know, legislative representation when, in fact, you know, large portions of their populations are voting for Democrats. Same with purple states that are controlled by Republicans. But they are not, to the best of my knowledge, now I may be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure I'm not, they are not rewriting the Electoral Count Act of 1877, which came out of the election of 1876, when Sam Tilden actually won, the Democrat won the popular vote and won the Electoral College vote, but they, the, the Republicans were successful in getting it thrown to the House of Representatives, where they put Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, in as president. You know, there's a lot more to that deal, and I've, in fact, there's a hot link to an article about it in my op-ed today, if you want to read the whole history of it. but. To the best of my knowledge, they're not fixing that problem. That would require a constitutional fix or a major legislative fix. Given what you just said about their commitment, um, it looks like the coup is inevitable. I'm not sure it's inevitable. I think that as more and more people are realizing what's going on and more and more Republicans are starting to step up. I mean, you know, Chris Christie coming out and saying the election of Glenn Youngkin proves that we can still hold power just by lying to people about race. We don't need to lie to them about elections. We don't need Donald Trump. You know, I think that's a start. I'm, I'm not terrified. I'm not panic, Harry, and I don't think any of us should be. But I think that we need to go into this eyes wide open and we need to wake up as many people as we can. Harry, thanks for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick Coit, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hardenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor O'Reilly, and Carter Verde. Tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 